future of work with thanks to VHI Healthcare. Looking at the health and well-being of your employees in an ever-changing workplace with the VHI Health Insights Programme. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to the new series of Future of Work with Gavin McLaughlin and me, Jess Kelly. Each week we'll look at how COVID-19 has pushed the Irish workforce to change how business is done. Today we're going to be talking about well-being in the workplace and in particular when that workplace is your own home. Many of us are used to it now, but are we keeping the office culture alive and how is our well-being faring? Later in the show, we'll hear from VHI Healthcare's Head of Wellness, Dr. David Morris. They have some fascinating insights in a new white paper on whether working from home could be a more permanent fixture. And Kerry Cooper, Professor of Organisational Psychology at the Alliance Manchester Business School, will be joining us with some tips on keeping your well-being in the home and telling us why COVID won't necessarily mean the end of the office. First though, Jess, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. How has lockdown three been going? I honestly think, and I don't want to start off on a bit of a downer, but for me personally, this one has been the toughest. I think coming out of Christmas, the uncertainty leading up to Christmas, I think, was very uh, stressy for everybody. We just wanted to be able to see our families and so on. So I think that was a bit of a worry. And then on a personal side, you know, it was my birthday, then it was my nephew's birthday. And not being able to be with your family on those very family orientated occasions kind of just hammers home the the personal costs or the personal expense that we're all paying for this. So I think I have found this the most exhausting and the most draining of the lockdowns. But I am less moany about working from home now because if you remember from season one of this show, I didn't like the whole thing of working from home. I found it very, very tough. I found it very hard just to kind of focus in on work mode. But I seem to have gotten into a groove with it now. And I think that has been a huge benefit. That being said, I don't want it to be forever. And I know we're going to talk to a few people throughout the next hour about whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea. But from my own well-being's point of view, I think I really miss my friends and my family and I really miss my colleagues. And I miss being able to sit in a room with you and talk crap for like however long we want it. And I think the dynamic that you have with someone in person is completely different than when you're just chatting to them on on a Zoom screen or a team screen. Um, So they would be my key learnings. What about you? Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly agree with you that this has been the most difficult. The weather uh, was a big part of that, I think. And when you think back to the first lockdown, it was sort of, well, you know, we'll just make this sacrifice now and, you know, hopefully we don't get a second wave. But I I think people thought it would sort of be short, sharp Mm. pain. A second wave didn't really seem like it was looming that large uh, in people's minds. Um, and then we did have a second wave and obviously the numbers weren't as bad, but then this one came and it was much worse and it feels so open-ended. You're just looking at extension after extension after extension of the restrictions and there's kind of no certainty uh, on, on when we're coming out and plus the vaccine rollout is so mm. slow as well. So <clears throat> it's definitely been the most difficult, but over the last couple of weeks as the weather has got better, definitely get a sense that people's moods uh, have improved a little bit you know I was able to get out for a walk on the beach at the weekend and you know maybe I'm just getting old but it has <laughs> I, I do feel a new uh, appreciation for the simple pleasures in life just being able to get a nice takeaway coffee was great this is a bit weird but the sound of a wood pigeon which kind of reminds me of my childhood just going what out on a walk and hearing sound that sound like? Can we get do, you want, do you want me to actually make yeah, the go sound on, yeah. you go hoo 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 
I think we can just leave this week's show right there. I don't think we're going to beat that exact moment. But no, you're right. Like, I think getting out in nature is good. You know, when people put stuff on Instagram, I don't know if you're on Instagram, but I am. And you see people going, you know, connect with nature. You know, nature is healing. And if you're sitting in your dressing gown in your bed with like a blanket over your head, you just want to go, oh, go away. But I do think there is something in that getting out there and not getting lashed on, being able to get your coffee. And I'm sure for you as well, being able to see your son running on the beach or getting out and about must be very good as well. Yeah, we had to form sort of a protective cordon because he's, <laughs> he's no sense of fear at all. So he was in his wellies and like he'd happily just keep walking out to sea. So we kind of had to scramble just to keep him, keep him, uh, keep him beside the shore. So, I mean, definitely it has, it has. Uh, that I would have been probably a bit sniffy about this whole thing of get close to nature, etc. But I, I have been able to see the benefits of it. Interesting to see what some companies have been doing as well, because, you know, that's a, a big topic for us, of course, today. And I was speaking to a company called Compass Group quite recently, which are a big catering organisation and they sort of manage restaurants and canteens in, in workplaces and in, in colleges and schools. And obviously a lot of these places have been closed for the last few months um, because of what's been going on. But what they've actually started doing in some cases is because employees haven't been able to access the canteen, they've actually been shipping food out to them at home. Oh, so you get class. this nice package uh, of, of nice food coming in from your workplace. So, you know, I thought that was kind of a nice example of what companies can do to look after their employees' well-being. It wasn't just sort of talking and saying, you know, we support you, et cetera, et cetera. Nice to be able to open the door and have that sitting outside for you. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for those kind of care packages or exhibitions of exactly like, you know, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, you know, following through with your good intentions. So many of the businesses that I've interviewed on Tech Talk over the years, from the huge, big corporations right down to the SMEs, they all have these mission statements and they'll say somewhere in there that, you know, we take care of our people and we put our people first and all that sort of jazz. And I think it's been so fascinating to see the companies that have done that over the last number of months. And if you chat to people, you know, it's not about them getting, you know, a 500 quid bonus at the end of the year. It's more about their employers being understanding if they need to do a bit of flexi time. It's about them. Like, I know somebody, a friend of mine got a package sent to the house and it had things like, you know, a bath bomb, a box of chocolates. And it was kind of just shut down on five o'clock and use everything in this box yeah. was the message. And that is something that's really nice because I think when we started this show last year, it was all about companies just surviving this change. It was all in that adapt- adaptation phase of just like, let's just get uh, figure a way to get things working and we'll deal with everything else later on. And now it's about the longevity. And I found it really interesting. I don't know what you think about it. The, the tech companies in particular saying, oh, we're never going to go back to the office again or our employees can work from home forever. I wonder, is that a bit of a premature conversation to be having, particularly when you've been forced into something? You know, it'd be different if it was a strategic easing of uh, the working in office measures that certain companies have for them just to flip the switch on whatever date it was last March, saying, you know, the country's going to lockdown, everyone has to work from home. And then businesses saying, you know, we're never going back to an office again. That to me feels slightly premature. Yeah, the key, I think, is to have the option, isn't it? And mm. that's part of being employee-led in the sense of well-being, if you like, that people have the option to go to the office if they want to uh, and if they want to stay at home. That That's an option for them as well. So I think that's the key. I think Most people, if you talk to them, my sense is, 
they they don't mind working at home maybe a couple of days a week, but they'd like to go into the office as well just to break it up. So I think there's kind of a a, a nice happy medium to be found. Um, but like we're nearly a year into this, I suppose. Mm. Um, but that's st- it feels like forever, but actually it, it's quite a, a short period of time, really. And I don't think we've learned yet. What actually is the impact of this on productivity uh, and on maintaining sort of company culture and on getting people trained up? We're st- we still don't really know, you know, what the consequences of that have been, and um, you know, this, this is something we're going to look at later in the series. But I, I am, I am kind of really interested in that question of how important is company culture? Mm-hmm. What what is the value that it actually brings to the business, and how important is the office actually in? generating uh, that culture uh, you know and I think it is it's particularly important for you know graduates coming in for example uh, who are getting trained up a bit of face to face contact I think is important for them but that's what I was going to say if you're a new hire joining a company you know I, like I started in Newstalk when I was 19 making tea and coffee and I could not make an instant coffee to save my life I genuinely didn't know how to do it I learned how to make instant coffee by seeing other people doing it I learned 95% of the stuff that I know how to do now by seeing other people do it now I know our job's a bit different but I didn't know how to run a studio or edit audio or have the confidence to go up and vox pop someone all of those things I learned by watching other people and I think if you're going into a new company not only are you missing out on the crack in the office and the brand identity and the ethos of the company and learning how to interact with people but you're also missing out on those learning opportunities and I think that is something that you can't replicate in a Zoom call or on a Teams call or anything like that and that's something that maybe just the nature of the experiences that we have when we go into a new workplace are going to change dramatically but I know for me if I was to join this company or any company right now I would miss the the sort of learn by doing, learn by seeing thing that I got when I started out here. Yeah, I mean, and it's all, it's all part of uh, the well-being experience, if you like, which is kind of the, the topic at hand today. But I do have a, a bit of a concern about it all because there is this balance, I suppose, between being flexible and, and allowing employees sort of the, the freedom to kind of do what they want in, in terms of where they work. But at the end of the day, the economy is in a really bad place. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies are struggling. They actually need people to be productive and there, and there does come a point uh, where maybe you have to get the stick out uh, and you have to say, look, do you know what? Actually, we're in a bit of trouble here mm-hmm. and uh, you know we kind of need everyone to step up to the plate a little bit. So um, it, it's the kind of thing that has to be sensitively managed, but I wouldn't want to lose sight of that fact as well and go too wishy-washy. No, I know. And it is like I always use the line of you don't want to be like Oprah Winfrey, you know, just be the best you you can be on the day and all that malarkey. Like I do think these are businesses. They are the things that put food in our table and pay our bills and all that stuff. But I know myself and I know from talking to my friends and my family, we're all exhausted. Like everybody is on their knees and it's not just from working it's from worrying about your parents and worrying about your siblings and worrying about your nieces and nephews and worrying about your friends. If you have one Egypt friend who's going around and doing whatever they want, you're worried for them. Yeah. And I think that there's nothing, in my opinion, more draining than emotional stress. And I think we can all deal with the normal stresses of our jobs, or most of us can. But I think when you have a, a new working conditions when you have uncertain times in terms of the economy and maybe in terms of your job, and then you have the emotional stress of worrying the entire time, you're going to be exhausted. And I think anybody who's saying that they can still function at 100% 
is lying. Yeah, and it's, it makes it hard to stay motivated, doesn't it? I mean, when you've got yeah. all these extra words in your head. I mean, you use the word draining. I mean, that's that's the best word to use, I think. Um, and it's kind of hard maybe to, to get yourself up and, and get ready to give it 100%, uh, you know, in your day's work. So I'd be interested to talk to Kerry Cooper about this a little bit later on. Because this whole area is fascinating. When you look at, you know, top business people or top sports people or whatever, what is it that actually drives them? Yeah. What, like, why are they motivated? You know, you, you hear sort of this stuff about, you know, we incentivize them with, with money, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I think for a lot of people, it probably goes beyond that. And I, I kind of wonder how much of it is sort of an innate thing that you're just, you just happen to be a motivated person and you have this drive to get up and succeed uh, uh, and how much of it maybe can be learned. So, you know, I'm mm. looking forward to find out maybe is there a technique that people can use um, if they're feeling drained and if they're feeling stressed, if they're feeling worried to actually kind of push that aside uh, and, and maybe focus more on, uh, you know, for when they're in their working hours, maybe focus more on their job and, and, and maybe find themselves uh, able to be a bit more productive. Yeah, we would love to hear from you if, you know, how's the last, uh, since we've been on with this show, how's the last year been? What have the, been the key learnings? What have been the biggest challenges? But also the opportunities as well. You can email com. Gav, would you say that there have been, uh, you know, there has been a bit of light on the horizon for you? Like, let's just talk about you for a second. Have you found this sort of flexible working uh, beneficial in any way, shape or form? Yeah, well, I, I think um, probably the main thing I'd say is it's enabled me to spend more time with my son. I mean, we, we kind of spoke about that in the last series. Um, that's sort of time that you just don't get back. Uh, and when you see him growing up so fast, um, it, it kind of does make you uh, does make you realise that. Is I mean, I, I do feel that there's light at the end of the tunnel in, in terms of the vaccine rollout and all that. I mean, it is kind of frustratingly slow, but you can see that there's a bit of progress being mm. made. And I kind of have... Does give me a fairly clear picture of what I'd like my working arrangement to be in in the future, which is kind of as as I mentioned earlier, you know, if I need to be in here doing stuff, yeah, then I'll be in here. But for the rest of the time, actually, there's no need for me to be in here, uh, and I can I can do a lot of my work that doesn't involve me being in a studio. That can all be done at home, uh, and that kind of you know it's probably helpful for the company in terms of uh, you know they they need they need uh, less desk space, uh, and it's helpful for me in terms of saving a few bob on on getting in and out. So that to me uh, is the ideal model. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. One thing though that I wish we need to start teaching in like primary school level and drum it into people right up until they're ninety years old, and that is that you can schedule the time that you send emails. Oh yeah, that's a good trick. Oh, listen, you don't need to be sending an email at 11 o'clock at night. You don't need to be sending an email at five o'clock in the morning. Yes, you can flexi work whenever you want, but be considerate of the other person. And that's my sort of little passive aggressive wish. Yeah, well, it's not not fair, is it? I mean, I I actually think it's not fair to send somebody an email at uh, 11 o'clock at night because it kind of does create the seed in their mind. Well, that person is is working till maybe I should be doing it as well. Um, so I mean the old the old scheduling trick is is pretty simple and, and like don't get me wrong there are times obviously when you need to put in a, an extra bit of time if there's something urgent that needs to be done but uh, you don't kind of need to be putting pressure on your colleagues no. send them emails at all hours of the day and night no like that's what I I think we should talk about this in the show actually is you know etiquette so remote working etiquette and I think you know the notion of if you're working from home it doesn't mean you're available for a call at any time of the day. 
I think we yeah. still need to establish clear boundaries of when you're on and when you're off and not feeling bad if you're going for a walk at two o'clock in the afternoon, which normally you'd be sitting at your desk in the office. Like, I think we need to set our own boundaries, but I desperately do need and would love to hear from whether it's a HR expert or whatever. Maybe our guest today will be able to tell us of some of the etiquette boundaries when it comes to remote working, because I really do think it's something that we could all benefit from. And I don't think that um, enough has been sort of emphasised on that just yet. Mm, well, let's get into it, shall we? We'll take a quick break uh, and then we'll be joined by VHI Healthcare's Head of Wellness, Dr. David Morris. Future of work. With thanks to VHI Healthcare. Looking at the health and well-being of your employees in an ever-changing workplace with the VHI Health Insights Programme. This is News Talk. Welcome back to Future of Work with Gavin McLaughlin and me, Jess Kelly. Uh, we're joined now by VHI Healthcare's Head of Wellness, Dr. David Morris. David, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Jess. It's great to be here. So someone who has a title like Head of Wellness, uh, I'm dying to talk to you because I think that's something that we could all do with a, a little bit more of at the moment. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of what exactly your role entails? Yeah, it's, it's quite a broad role, as the, as the title suggests. It's everything to do with, I suppose, proactive healthcare that, that VHI can do for our members. A big part of that is developing uh, wellness programs and wellness strategies for our corporate members and, and for our, our consumer members as well. Just looking after everything, all the different aspects of their, their well-being, and that could be anything from sleep, nutrition, movement, and in this case, uh, social connection. Yeah, it's interesting because at the moment, like wellness and well-being almost became buzzwords over the last number of years. Everybody wants to be seen to be doing something for their employees' well-being. But it's very hard, as you mentioned there, to, to define what that is. Um, the the report that you've done, the white paper that you've done now, looking at um, social connections and employee engage, engagement as the workplace changes, what are some of the key findings that, that you have come across when conducting this work? Yeah, I, I guess this is a really important one. This this is our fifth report of, the, of this kind, and it helps us to keep a finger on the pulse of what's happening in corporate Ireland. We've done lots of different topics in the past, and, and actually what's really interesting about this one is that we picked social connection before the pandemic started, mm. and uh, the research went through the pandemic, so we've got some really interesting findings from it. I guess at the outset it's just important to say how, how critical social connection is for us as humans. It, it really helps us to develop um, positive mental health. It helps us to manage stress, be happier. And from a a pure medical perspective, there's a lot of evidence now that shows that being lonely or being socially isolated increases your risk of early mortality by even up to 30%. So it's really, really critical to to look at people's social connection. And it's something that's often left out as we look at their kind of healthcare overall traditionally. Mm. When we did this research, a big part of what came through was was very positive. I suppose in the context that social connection is so important and we all spend a huge proportion of our lives at work, it's really, really important that people have a good positive relationships at work and that they've got good social connections at work. And one of the really good findings that we've got is that 70% of people have formed really good friendships at work and really good relationships. And that's that's excellent. But on the other side, then, I think there's about 40, almost half, half of the people would have said that their experiences in broader work context, so in the kind of Christmas party settings or interdepartmental meetings, wouldn't have been um, positive social interactions. We think that's likely because they're they're sometimes over-engineered, they're a little bit more difficult to work with. Mm. And then going through the pandemic, I think some of the really key findings and some of the things that came out very strongly was that 
I suppose, you know, 40% of people felt that their, their communications with their boss or their supervisor actually got better. Uh, that's probably because there's more clarity around the communication. It's easier to, to kind of have specific instructions and there's less chit-chat. Um, and, and really interestingly, about 78% of people, so nearly two-thirds of people, want to continue, will consider working from home more after the pandemic restrictions ease. And that's a, that's a really interesting finding as well. And I think it's going to be really important for a lot of businesses as we go forward. Yeah, I want to pick up on the point of um, communication from the manager because that, that's, that's slightly surprised me, I guess, because... Um, I think managers were dealing, it depends on the, the level of manager and all the rest, but I think managers were dealing with a lot in terms of getting people the equipment they needed, um, ensuring they had access to the files that they needed. There was a lot going on. And so to hear that the communication from the manager has improved is good. Did you get any insight into the level of communication, though, from the manager to the employee and vice versa? Is it just a generic, hi, how are you on Slacker teams? Or... You know, is that all people really need from their managers just to see that they're thinking of them and that they know they exist? I, I think that's it, Jess. It's exactly it. I think it's it's to the point, really, when we talk about, and I think the feedback coming in on this one specifically about the communication with your boss or your immediate supervisor, and the improvement in that actually was, a lot of it was down to the fact that time was limited. Mm. Um, meetings were very goal-orientated. And, and I think the thing was that they were getting very clear, very concise communication. And, and for a lot of employees, that's actually exactly what they wanted. It's what they needed. Um, so there was there's far less, um, I suppose, far less interference with other things. They were very focused. And, and I think that was a massive help. Um, it, it, it has had a converse effect, um, I think, from a social connections perspective in general. So the, the other networks and the other interactions that people might have had in the workplace through the pandemic have faltered mm. um, as a result of that as well. Though, Yeah, that, that's something that myself and Gavin were talking about in part one of the show. Um, one of the things that I really miss about my normal work life is being in the office. You know, some of the best ideas, rants, bitching sessions I've ever had have been at the coffee machine in this office. And obviously you don't have that at the moment because not everybody is here. We're in at staggered times. Obviously we're social distancing. And that is tough, but that is a huge part of what I think of when I am when I think of my work life is the, the, the friends that I have in this building. Have those relationships um, suffered dramatically? And do we have any insight into the knock-on impact that that could have if this goes on for much longer? Yeah, no, th- those relationships have changed. <clears throat> I think there's a there's a significant piece around people being able to have those as you, water cooler conversations, the little bit of chit-chat at the start of a meeting, when we meet somebody in the corridor um, as we pass by them. All of that has, has dropped away. Now, some people have probably maintained some of the very close friendships that they've had. But I think, as you say, and and as you described, I think there's so much going on with the workplace now. Everything is so goal-orientated. Our conversations are fixed and focused in in our Zoom calls and everything like that. There's a huge amount of the workload has is increased for an awful lot of people. About half of the respondents to the survey actually said their workload has increased. So I think because of all those factors definitely a lot of those social relationships have, have been impacted. And there will be a knock-on effect to that. Uh, there, we, we've seen and we, we know that if people are 
much more socially connected if they're having those positive relationships and even those little bits of chit chat there's huge positive impacts from them people are better able to manage stress they're able to have a blow off of a little bit of steam if something's building up they're able to go and talk to somebody about it they're able to have a huge amount more stress relief they're able to an awful lot of those innovative ideas come mm-hmm. from those random conversations where we go through uh, just stuff that we're not actually thinking of anything in specific and we come up with the best ideas at that point so that there will be knock-on effects to productivity to employee happiness and there'll be a huge amount of stress and mental health issues that come through this as well what's best practice do you think then david in, in terms of trying to tackle this and get to grips with it i mean you, you, we know clearly from what you're saying about how important social connection is but then at the same time we see that you know the, the bulk of people will be happy to do some working from home so how should it be managed yeah, there's a there's a this was a balance to be struck here, and that's a really critical thing. So oftentimes when we look at well-being uh, activities and programs, it's relatively black and white. It's pretty straightforward. We'd love everybody to move more. We'd love everybody to get positive sleep. Social connection is a little bit more difficult for employers and and for company owners to manage. You don't want to over-engineer it because, as we see in the survey, if you if you kind of if you make it too structured and too formal, and you encourage people too firmly to go and socially connect. It's just it's going to have the opposite effect and people will feel uncomfortable with it. It'll be difficult for them to do what you really need to do. And the key recommendations that we came uh, that our expert group developed in, in, uh, through the survey and through the analysis of the results was that we need to encourage more goal demoted conversations. So we need to give time for people to have a coffee break, even if it's a virtual coffee break, have a chat that's not related to their work goals. And that's a really important piece. There has to be a sense of belonging or psychological safety within the company. And that goes back to the company culture. And and that's about making sure that people are working together in teams, that the teams are, are working together tightly, that they've got good, strong relationships with each other. And there's no feeling of somebody's going to get put down for saying something silly or for anything like that. It gives people the opportunity to really connect at a deeper level if they feel safe. OK, uh, as you work with your clients and just to broaden it out a little bit, are there any things that they have done that kind of stand out as a as a nice idea to, to just boost people's well-being? I mean, for example, in part one, we were talking about maybe sending a bit of food uh, out to the employee's home. Uh, ideas maybe like that. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's definitely an interesting point. I think there's been a lot of different things that companies have done to show that they're appreciating what people are doing. So that's a huge one. Sending out a pack definitely connects you back in. And that's a that's a big piece of, of what has happened over the last while as well. So if we don't have that connection to the workplace by going in every day, sometimes people can start to feel a little bit disconnected. So sending something out, something physical out to an employee actually brings them back into that space. It brings them makes them a little bit more connected to the company again. Some of the other things that we've seen happen which have been really interesting initiatives are that departments take upon themselves or teams take upon themselves actually without you know the the executives defining it they've actually taken on doing some tea parties almost so they go on a zoom call with a different department they have a little random chat of just anything at all they shoot the breeze for half an hour have a coffee together and then the next department takes it on and, and invites a different department and it just goes around the company it's a really nice concept of people just actually developing that that network again and trying to have those chats that are just not associated to work and we're able to connect a little bit better and, and make some different connections. 
What um, have the managers been saying in terms of how they're finding it? Because very often we, we would focus in on the, the employees and how they're coping and how they're adapting and the support that they're receiving. But a lot of managers were kind of thrown in the deep end and not only were they managing a team, but they were managing a team that's remote. You know, maybe they've got kids, maybe they've got housemates, maybe they've got elderly parents that they're worried about. And the, the pressure, I suppose, of being a people manager really was put to the test over the last 12 months or so. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge piece. I mean, there's been a lot of challenges for the employees and for managers alike. And I think having that, having an understanding of how to communicate in, in a positive way with your employees, be, staying connected with them all the time. And I know you're going to be speaking to our, our HR director, Amy Burke, in a few weeks as well. And she, she, I mean, we've had a really positive um, promotion of really strong, clear communication. It's about employees knowing where, the, where we're going, where it's going through such uncertainty at the moment, having what Whatever clarity we can have, having clear communication, being able to check in with people, because I think there's a huge piece as well that's happening with employees as they go through this time, because they're not passing by a manager, they're not passing by their office, they may not be talking to them as regularly as they were, they may be less likely to report issues that are cropping up for them, stresses, health issues, well-being issues. So it's about managers checking in and, and making sure that they're getting all that back as well um, if, you know, in, a, in a proactive way before something actually turns into a big issue. Mm. Um, I, I'm looking through the white paper here I have it in front of me and, and the, the headings that are in it are quite interesting and I suppose a bit thought-provoking because there's elements of you know the, the rules of engagement, working from home, rewriting the rules. Although we're a year into this, I do think that we're still in a huge uh, period of change for the workplace. How important is it that uh, managers and executives at companies take the issue of social interaction seriously and, you know, fix what needs to be fixed or, you know, hear out any issues that there may be? Because this isn't going to be just, you know, resolved come the summer. It's absolutely essential. And it's, it's one of the most important things that we can do right now because it's probably the biggest change. One of the biggest changes that has happened through the pandemic is that that network, that interaction, that ability to interact freely has been changed so dramatically. It's uh, critical that we're able to do that. And what we've suggested actually through the white paper and in, in our solution is around a framework and that companies need to take this so seriously that they should have somebody assigned to making sure that social connection in the company is maximized. So that's a social connection facilitator or something like that. And then there's a we've suggested a framework with three easy steps around making sure that the culture is right, addressing any of those unwritten rules. So a lot of the employees that came back and responded in the survey described that there was unwritten rules within the company. So although the company might at a high level be suggesting that it's good for people to interact, that they should take on these coffee breaks, that we should have social connection. There may be an unwritten rule or something that's kind of bubbling below the surface that if you're having coffee breaks, you're not productive, you should be getting back to your job and all of that stuff bubbles underneath. And that goes back to the clarity of communication. So we need to really encourage people very clearly to participate in these positive well-being uh, events. What about, sorry, what about um, new hires? This is something else that we mentioned earlier on. You know, if you're coming into a company, how... You know, you may not have anyone to go for the virtual coffee break with or you may not want to say to your boss, listen, I don't know anyone and I'm struggling because I'm just sitting at my kitchen table on my own. How do we go about looking after those people? This is a really interesting piece and I think this is becoming more prevalent as we go through the pandemic. I think at the beginning, 
our teams were formed in, in the majority of cases and the, those relationships shifted to, to remote. And that was a little bit easier. Mm. But what's happening now is the huge, the workforce that's being hired, as you described, they've never, they've never stood inside the door of the company. They've never met any of their teammates. And I think there's a real, there's a real importance has to be placed on their team, their managers, integrating them and bringing them into the team and people introducing themselves and having space for those social conversations. And that's exactly back to the points that we've described around. It's not, it cannot just be here are your tasks, off you go, sit at your kitchen table and, and, you know, crack on. It has to be bringing them in, getting to know them as a person, bringing them into the team and having that kind of social chat as well. And we would do that if we were in the office and we need to continue trying to do that, even though we're all working remotely. Do you get the impression that um, companies around the country are taking this seriously and they are investing the time, effort and money required to look after the well-being of their staff, particularly when it comes to social interaction? I think that a huge amount of companies now are seeing the the impact of it. They're seeing the importance of it. I think a lot of companies struggle to to know where to start with it. And that's kind of why we why we do these papers and why we give this advice is to help people have an idea of where to start. And I think that's the that's the most difficult part, especially with social connection. I think they, they appreciate over the past few years, there's been a huge appreciation of the actual impact of making sure your employees are happy, healthy, productive and, and well. Um, and I think it's an appreciation for the fact that social connection is a really critical part of that for innovation and for productivity. So it's, it's the biggest challenge I think they have is where to start and how to do it. And obviously that the, there are supports out there and there are ways to do it. But I know businesses of all sizes who haven't invested properly in HR. They might have an office manager who looks after holiday applications, who also kind of has a plus HR on their title, but that's not proper human resources. So is now the time to invest and also train and upskill your staff so that they can engage in meaningful conversation and meaningful change in the office? Yeah, I think it's essential that we have these these roles where people have a focus on on something like this, and that can be, and they they will need to understand what they're doing. They'll need training in this. They will need to be able to spend a fixed proportion of their time on something like this that they're not just doing it off the side of their desk. Because I think that's where things will fall down, and that there is an individual in a company who's charged with actually managing this type of stuff. Because what happens often is that we see companies have very large. Uh, well-being committees they've got an ethos of it running through the company and sometimes that works but very often what's the case is that if everybody in a company is doing something the reality is that nobody's actually focused on doing it properly so it's it's having somebody who's responsible and accountable for doing this stuff and making it happen is really critical well that white paper is available online if you want to have a read through it is fascinating and it's definitely food for thought Uh, dr david morris the head of wellness at vhi healthcare thank you so much for joining us here on future of work. Coming up next, we'll hear from Kerry Cooper, Professor of Organisational Psychology at the Alliance Manchester Business School on why the office will survive post-pandemic. Future of Work with thanks to VHI Healthcare. Looking at the health and well-being of your employees in an ever-changing workplace with the VHI Health Insights Programme. This is News Talk. 
Welcome back to Future of Work with Gavin McLaughlin and me, Jess Kelly. Every week we're tackling different issues relating to the future of work here in Ireland. Next week's show is going to focus on automation. How will this technology change not only manufacturing, but also how services are delivered and how people do their jobs. We'd love to hear from you as always. So if you have any questions, comments or anecdotes, you can email fow at newstalk.com. Now let's get back to well-being in the office or more pertinently the home office and we're joined by Kerry Cooper, Professor of Organisational Psychology at the Alliance Manchester Business School. Kerry, you're very welcome to the programme. Yeah, great to talk to you. Might just start by getting your views on, on what in general the impact of the last year has been on workers' well-being. Have things been better maybe than we might have expected or have they been worse? Well, if you look at the evidence, it, it hasn't been very good really. But pre, pre-COVID, in, if you look at Ireland, the UK, and a number of countries in Europe, you found that uh, mental ill health was the leading cause of sickness absence in almost all countries, pre-COVID. And uh, we had, uh, in the UK, for example, 57% of all long-term sickness absence, as uh, calculated by the health and safety executive, the government's health and safety was due to depression, anxiety, and stress. The ONS, for example, in the UK, looked at a quarter of a million people in May and found that 63% said they were suffering from depression and anxiety as a result of, well, in general. So the figure was slightly higher than we got pre-COVID. I think the thing is, um, it it was good and it was bad. The good bit, I think, was working from home meant that people had better work-life balance, uh, more work-life integration. You know, they could see their kids more. The difficulty was that they had no social contact, very little except virtual, uh, with their work colleagues, their boss, their colleagues, their uh, their customers, whoever they were dealing with. So the lack of social contact was a problem. Um, But on the other hand, uh, we learned how to work more flexibly. Although people pre-COVID didn't want to uh, work 100% from home, they wanted to work flexibly. The evidence was clear. If people had more control and autonomy of their job by working flexibly. That means maybe substantially from home, but going to the office two, three days a week, maybe not even as much as that. In other words, to fit their work with their home and integrate them both is what people wanted pre-COVID. They want that now as well, by the way. Yeah, I think that that, that question of autonomy... ...much more of a, of a, of a, a hybrid model. Yeah, I, I think the question of autonomy is is really key in all of this. And, uh, you know, it can be sort of a difficult balancing act for, for companies to strike, though, because we know the economy is in a very difficult place. Productivity is needed. Companies are struggling. So it can be hard maybe to achieve the productivity you might like to achieve while at the same time trying to take account of people's uh, well-being, uh, uh, you know, and giving them that flexibility that maybe they'd like. Yeah, but the problem that uh, employers have to understand, particularly senior management, if you look at the research evidence pre-COVID, when people were allowed to work flexibly, the productivity was higher, the sickness absence days were lower, and the job satisfactions were higher. So flexible working, but not 100% remote working, absolutely works. The other thing about well-being is, do we have the right... And here's the other thing we learned from COVID, the COVID era is that if you don't have the right kind of boss, i.e. the line manager from shop floor to top floor, you're not going to get productivity and you're going to get more stress-related illness. So the importance of the line manager came to the fore. 
Do we have line managers who have good EQ, emotional intelligence? Do they have good interpersonal skills? Do they know how to bloody manage people is the critical dimension. And we, pre-COVID, in Ireland, in the UK, and in most of Western Europe, we promote people based on their technical skills, not their people skills. That's the big lesson we learned. We need a different kind of boss. Yeah, well, I mean, it's such an interesting point, and it, certainly that has been a big, a big problem over the years. I, there's no doubt about that. Let's just delve into it a little bit more. Uh, what is the kind of traits that uh, these people need to display? What is it that makes a good manager in this world? Okay, what makes a good manager is obviously they have to have the technical skills. So if they're in marketing, for example, they have to know a lot about marketing. But if they get a marketing management job, they need to know how to manage people. And to be honest with you, it's the social, it's what some people in the past have called the soft skills, but actually they're really hard skills. They are skills to recognize, to uh, empathize with people, to be able to realize when people have unmanageable workloads or not coping by looking at their body language, by being open and being able to talk to them and having the social skills to do that. So the uh, what we call EQ, emotional intelligence, is very fundamental. And the irony is, of course, women have more of those emotional skills than men do. So we need, perhaps need more women in managerial roles from shop floor to top floor. But no, it's, it's about you can train people, by the way. So if you, if you promote, continue to promote people based on their technical skills, and you promote them up to a management role and another management role, and they don't have the good people skills, the, your people will not deliver. Your productivity will not be good. And your, uh, what we call common mental disorders, your stress-related illnesses will increase. So we need to identify all our bosses in a workplace, whether it's uh, in a broadcasting company or whether it's in any, anywhere, public sector, private sector body. We need people with these good social skills. How much responsibility does the individual employee have, though? Uh, I mean, I'm always interested in this idea of motivation and why some people are motivated and some aren't. I mean, is there some sort of a a trick or a technique maybe that that people can use to make them uh, be more motivated? Well, for me, the way you motivate people is your line manager usually motivates, you know, creates the atmosphere for you to want to have a sense of purpose, to want to deliver to want to perform well. I mean, I'm a Manchester City supporter, and look at Pep Guardiola as a manager. Look what he's produced with his team. He, he makes They have a sense of purpose. They want to win. They want to win for themselves, not just him. That's what a, a manager does. But the individual has a responsibility, too. It's not always just dumped on the manager. The individual has a responsibility. It's what we in my trade call the psychological contract between the employer or your boss and the employee. And that contract is the, uh, the boss says, I will help you. I'll support you. I'll create the right kind of atmosphere so you can grow. I'll give you autonomy and control. I won't create a long working hours culture. I'll manage you by praise and reward rather than fault finding. Your responsibility back in this contract is to deliver, is to be a part of the team, to do what you can, to go the extra mile. And that's what the workplace has to be about. But for that to be achieved, Whoever your boss is, and we all have bosses in life, that person has to create the conditions for this to happen. But the individual then has the obligation to deliver as well. 
And if they feel they're falling short, you know, maybe they'd like to do a bit better, but they just, you know, for whatever reason, they aren't performing. How should they go about improving their own individual performance? Well, you know what? What you do, all of us do. If I feel my technical skills aren't great, you know, and I don't know about social platforms or I don't know about X, Y, and Z, you know what you do? You talk to your boss. And if you have a boss that's open and has these good social skills, he or she will listen to you and say, yeah, that's great. So what you're saying is you need help in that area. Come on, let's go get the training for it. Let's see. And if you're saying you have unmanageable workloads, you know, the other thing is the individual who, you know, you have a boss, your boss says do that, 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 and you can't deliver all that. It's too much in the time that he or she is uh, uh, mandating you for, is giving, is giving you permission to do it. Then you have to be able to communicate and you have to say, you know what? I can do those. Those are high priority jobs. I'll do those first and I'll prioritize and do my work. But you have to tell the boss. You have to have a good relationship with the person who's who you're who's managing you and you have to be honest and open and you can be by the way if you have the right kind of line manager who's open and prepared to listen that that is the key point though isn't it that you know you have the right kind of boss because not everybody does and i was reading a fascinating article yesterday about micromanaging um bosses people who just hover the entire time don't encourage don't nurture just question and undermine at every turn if you're an employee working under somebody like that I could totally see how your self-confidence, your self-drive, all of that stuff would be chipped away. How do you, you know, um, how do you tackle that situation without telling your your boss to get into the sea? I think we have too many of those. I absolutely agree with you. And you know what I think you do? You have to ask yourself the question, will this person ever listen to me? Or is that their management style and it's immutable? There's no way you're going to change it. So you know what you do? You look for another job. You stay in that job, well, because look at the times we're operating in. I mean, this is going to—we're having going to have the most horrendous recession we've ever had. Look like 2008 will look like a peanut factory in comparison. This is going to be quite bad. So you stay in the job you're in at the moment, you tolerate it, but then you look—you look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. If you think that boss can't learn, on the other hand, you may have a boss who behaves in a particular way and is blindsided, doesn't under, doesn't realize that they're behaving that way, but is open to you giving him or her feedback on that kind of behavior. You know, you say, at a time when they're not stressed, you go talk to them and you say, Fred, I don't know if you know, when you gave me those four jobs, how the hell do you expect me to do it? I'd have to work 15-hour days mm. to achieve that. Would it, is it possible I can just do these things in that period of time and then get on to the next thing? So you can give feedback to bosses, but you have to make the judgment call. Is this person prepared to change? If they're not, then you're in the wrong job. But can you You learn as a manager, can you learn, you know, emotional intelligence and self-awareness and empathy? And, you know, is that something that if I go to my boss now and I say, look, the way you speak to me isn't great. You give me too much to do. I'm not happy. And it's because you're on top of me. Can that person then go away and learn the skills to not be that type of manager? Yes, because HR knows how to do that. There's training for, there's empathy training, there's social skill development training, resilience training, and a lot of these work. Obviously, you have to find the right kind of course, but that's what HR is supposed to do. They're supposed to facilitate you going to get the help you need to develop your skills. Because, you know, there'll be, if you look at an average company, 
you'll find probably 30, 35% of people have these social skills naturally. You know, they just have it. Then you might find that 40% need, 50% need training, right? You may also find, by the way, that 15 to 20% are untrainable when it comes to developing social skills. They just don't have the personality to do it. And they should be doing a technical role, but on a management role. And as an HR department, that's what they do. They're supposed to look at, uh, the, you know, the, the, their a managerial pool and say, hey, you know, we've got problems there with those 14 managers. We, they need some help and some training, and they give it to them. But you can ask for it as an individual. Uh, you can get feedback. You just have to be open to other people's perception of you if you're a really good line manager. Are you concerned, Kerry, that when so many firms are struggling financially, this whole area of training and empty training and all that, I mean, it's an easy place to say, look, do you know what, that's where we're going to make a cut and save a few bob. No, I'm not worried about that. You know why? Because there's been tons of resistance, not just about that training. It's about having a strategy for the well-being of your employees. We're going into a recession. There's going to be fewer people in the workplace doing more work, feeling more job dis- uh, more job insecure, and working longer hours to show commitment, right? This is called something called presenteeism. We're going to get that big time. So we need to develop a culture and have a strategy for how we're going to create a workplace where people get up in the morning and, uh, you know, want to go to work, have a sense of purpose, who won't lo- work long hours just to demonstrate to their employer, you know, that, you know, send emails at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, just to show the employer I'm I'm committed, so don't make me redundant. Don't make yeah. me the next tranche of people made redundant. No, the evidence is clear-cut, by the way. In Ireland, in Britain, in most of Western Europe, we have done, research has been done, which shows if you create the right kind of, and you, you look at well-being as a strategic issue, you create the right kind of culture in a workplace where you have the right kind of managers, you ensure that people don't work long hours, that they work reasonable hours to do their job. But long means ill, long means less productive. That's what the science shows. So we don't need a long hours culture. People are going to want to work long hours because they're worried about their job security, given the recession we're entering. That will will be counterproductive because they'll burn themselves out. Yeah, I think you definitely think you're right about that. What about the office then? Because there's a whole discussion, I suppose, about the future of the office you know, there's going to be more remote working uh, and maybe the office is going to be less the centre of everything that goes on. What do you make of all this? What do you think the role of the office will and should be? Okay, I think people have it wrong. Uh, Pre-COVID, funny enough, I did a book that was a global science book looking, it was called Flexible Work. It came out in May. I was very lucky, thank you very much. Uh, The book came out in May and it's done extremely well and was looking at all over the globe what does the evidence say on flexible working? Not remote working, by the way. Remote working means 100% from home. But flexible working is what people want, gives them autonomy and control and so on. The evidence was it delivered to the bottom line in terms of productivity, job satisfaction, and less sickness, stress-related sickness absence days. So we know that works. However, we're going to have two phases when we get back to work, when we get back to an office environment. Uh, number one phase will be everybody will want to go into the workplace for two reasons. One, they miss other people and their colleagues, right? It's, uh, their social needs haven't been met during this year, and they want to uh, go back into the office, uh, relate to their colleagues, team build, develop the culture. 
The second reason they're going to want to go back in is they're feeling job insecure, and they want to look at the politics of that workplace. They want to find out, is my job really secure here? How are we doing? What's going on? So they'll do that for political and social reasons to start with, everybody, everywhere. But second phase will be when they feel secure that their job is reasonably secure and that they've now linked with their colleagues, they'll go to the hybrid model. They'll work substantially from home, by the way, where where they can. Doctors and nurses can't. Bus drivers can't. But where they can, they will go work a hybrid model, which means they'll work probably substantially from home, three days a week, probably one or two days a week in a central office where they have to team build, where they have to develop a new product or service whenever they need to and for their social needs. So the office will not disappear, but it will be downsized. I know in London, tons of businesses now that are getting rid of floors of their office. So if they have four floors, they're now getting rid of two to three of those floors because they know that the, law, the medium to long term will be a hybrid model where people work primarily from home, but go into the office a day or two a week. Just very briefly then, what would you say are the, the lasting lessons of this pandemic for companies who are looking to manage their employees' well-being? Okay, number one, uh, I, I think is... Allow, give people autonomy and control of their job. If they want to go into the office 100% of the time in the long run, let them. If they want to work substantially from home, and by the way, if this works for the nature of the job they do, that's really important in terms of psychological contract. Give people autonomy and control. Let them decide a flexi place, flexi time, as much as you can, because that delivers to the bottom line and makes people feel trusted and it makes for healthy, healthier employees. That's one. And the second thing is, please look at your line managers, because the new world of the hybrid model of working, where people will work from home and everything else, requires somebody who can manage people who are working in different contexts, some from a central office, some from home. It requ- and with the pressures of, of, of the stress from the recession, we need a different kind of boss. And you have to train those that need that kind of help. And whatever you do, let people prioritize their work. Let them get some balance in their homework. And be aware that people, when they're feeling job insecure, will tend to work extremely long hours. That is counterproductive. Long does not mean productive. Long means ill. Mm, so we need managers uh, a bit like your beloved Pep Guardiola. I will, uh, you know, I can't let it pass as a Manchester United fan by saying he is a good manager, but obviously they do have a lot of uh, uh, oil money behind them as well. But look, that's a, that's a conversation we can have another day. Uh, that's Kerry Cooper there, Professor of Organisational Psychology at the Alliance Manchester Business School. Thanks very much for that. It was fascinating. Thank you. And that is all we have time for this week. If you do have any questions, comments or anecdotes you'd like to share, you can email FOW at Newstalk.com and we will read out as many as we can with our expert guests next week. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on the Newstalk app, on iTunes, Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts. It will be available as a podcast first every Wednesday afternoon or on the radio here on Newstalk every Saturday from 7pm. We'll chat to you next week. Future of Work on News Talk with thanks to VHI Healthcare. Read our expert report on social interaction in an ever changing workplace at newstalk.com forward slash VHI Healthcare.